That's not good enough. How are we doing tonight? Thank you. All right. We're college students. All right. I'm not anymore, but I pretend to be. I've been doing it like, you know, I've been in my senior year for like 15th year in a row. So I'm just going to than I am at everything in life, especially with people, with God. You know, like you're going to die if you're up there. And he doesn't care. He's just up there doing that thing. And he is such a heart of justice that whenever he sees something that's wrong, it's just black and white wrong. You know, like he was just sitting there. And I remember one time we're sitting in my house. And he hears a car just drive by our house real fast. He goes, someone's speeding, you know, from the other room. Like, he's just calling it out. And I'm like, son, please don't be the hall monitor at school. Like, that's just not, that's not going to work well for you. And then there's Ella. She's four. And we call her boss lady because everyone ends up working for her. Like, no matter what. You know, and they don't even realize it. She's like, I don't have to walk. You'll carry me, you know. And every day she makes me laugh. I mean, yesterday she looked at my wife and she goes, Mom, do you know how to say uh, clean up in Spanish? And she's like, no, I don't. Do you? Did you learn that at school? And she goes, clean up in Spanish, ha, 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 and just like walks off. And I'm like, you're four. That's hilarious. You know? And then we have Gracie. She's the one mean mugging you. She's the wrecking ball uh, right there in the corner. When she smiles, it's like living in Seattle. Like the sun never comes out. But when she smiles, like, oh, my goodness, you're the cutest baby in the entire planet. But my kids have a song for her. In fact, they made it off of Waymaker. It's like, mess maker, temper temperature thrower, sleep stealer, cries in the night, Gracie, that is who, they'll just walk around the house and go, that is who you are, just singing about her. And so, and as you can see, like, we're really excited about going there. We're really excited about Cincinnati. It's a city that we fell in love with. And I want to share one story about Cincinnati before we get into what we're talking about today. A couple weeks ago, we took a trip there. Me and my wife and a group of other people are thinking about moving with us. And we're walking through this park, and we see this guy. He's reading through the book of Job. His name's Dennis. And one of us says, hey, Dave, that's a good book you're reading there. He goes, thanks. And as we start talking to Dennis, we realize that, well, it's, it's Saturday, so he reads the Bible on Saturday. But on Sunday, he reads the Quran. He's a Unitarian. And then on Monday, he's got a Buddhist thing he looks at, and he says he loves the book of Job. And so he starts talking to us and asking what we're, why we're there. And we tell him we're here to, we're Christians, we're here to start a church. You know, we're looking to do that here. And he immediately wants to engage on a political discussion with us. In which we're like, man, I don't even want to talk about that kind of stuff. Like, I'm not happy with those things that are happening in our world right now either. And as we get into the conversation, we start sharing. He starts asking about what kind of church would we plant? What kind of church would we start? And after we get done sharing the kind of church, a church like this and a place like that, we look at him and he's weeping. And Dennis looks at us and says, if, if that kind of church ever showed up in a place like this, I would go to that church. And it, we were just like, we can't wait to get there. We can't wait to see what God's going to do. So if you show up to the interest me, you'll hear more stories like that of people that we are going to be bumping into and hopefully leading to a faithful life of following Jesus, you know. So these are my kids. Can you imagine, can, just a quick question, what, what holiday do you think they love the most? Somebody say it. Yes. And why do they like it? That's exactly right. We wish it was because of Jesus' birth, but the majority of my kids love Christmas. But my son Jackson is beginning to develop a love for another holiday, the 4th of July. 
And he loves it because we blow up a lot of stuff. And now he's old enough that he can do that. You know, he loves fireworks, firecrackers. He, watched a lot of, he loves watching them go boom. He likes lighting them. He loves the danger of it. It's incredible. He even got a sparkler on his foot one day, and he was just like, whatever. He just kept running with it. He loves it, right? And we all kind of love the 4th of July. It's a fun holiday. In fact, America loves the 4th of July. You know, we do. I, I got some weird facts for us here that I think are pretty funny, are pretty great. Did you know on that day, on the 4th of July, we consume more beer on that day than any other day of the year? Like St. Patrick's Day doesn't even come close to it. We consume, we, we purchase for, for 4th of July party, as America, purchase $1 billion in beer for the 4th of July. Let me explain something that to you right there. There are 330 million people in America. That's $3 for every human that calls America home. Baby, child, woof. 150 million hot dogs. And then we, in fact, that was such a significant thing, right? Isn't that what we kind of love college is that we get away from mom and dad? I'm going to bed when I want to go to bed. I'll go to class when I want to go to class. I'll do what I want to do. And I'm out from underneath the roof of my parents and I can do it. We love that. We love freedom. We want freedom. We seek freedom. We desire it. But here's the thing I found out is that we don't have an excess of freedom in our life, but we have a low tolerance of freedom in our life. Because the things that we seek freedom in, they often end up enslaving us. Let me give you like example number one, this thing right here. Right when this came out, we're like, oh, my email is going to be on my phone. I can call people. I can go anywhere. I won't be strapped to a certain place. I don't even have to sit on my computer. It's right here. But what has this thing done to you? Hold on one second. I'm not done texting back. Oh, social media. You were saying? What has this thing done to you? It's enslaved you entrapped you it's promised freedom but really what ends up happening is you is is is, is you're just if you're if it's missing if it's not by your bedside if it's not in your pocket if it's not in your purse you feel like you're missing an arm and you're looking for it everywhere so even in the things that we seek freedom in, we often end up giving up freedom and enslaving ourselves to things that are around us and that just doesn't happen for free time it happens to us spiritually too See, tonight we're going to look at John 8, and the message that John 8, that Jesus really wants us to understand, is that in following Jesus as God is the only way to freedom from sin and freedom in this life. Only in him. So let's pray, and we're going to look at John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Jesus, thank you so much for these men and women. Thank you so much for this church that supports this ministry, that works with these people, these students, these... Lord, I ask that they would all sign up for fall retreat and that you would work powerfully in their lives, that they would transform a campus that is desperately in need of a ministry like this. But Lord, it wouldn't be something they would do outwardly. It would do something from the overflow of what you're doing inward. And Lord, as we open up the word of God right now, I ask that you would begin to transform us. You begin to change us. That you, we would let down the guard and we would let your Holy Spirit speak conviction into our hearts and press into us a desire to live a godly life that pursues you. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. It's all in your name for your glory. Amen. 
All right, John chapter 8, verse 31 goes like this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. One of the most abused verses in all scripture. The son sets you free. You will... And the narrator says, these were people who believed in him, but Jesus looks at them and says, they are enslaved to sin. And you know what? The Jews would agree with those two things. Because they don't believe that they have a problem. Look at verse 32. What do they say? It says, hey, we're the offspring of Abraham. What do you mean? We've never been enslaved to anyone. Like, who are you to set us free? See, from their perspective, they're not expecting Jesus. It'd be foolish for them to think that Jesus was talking about them being enslaved in that moment as slaves. Or that they, or for, it'd be foolish for them to say that they've never been slaves because the Jewish people have been enslaved over and over and over again throughout their history since Abraham. But what they're really seeing is that Jesus is talking to not a physical enslavement, but a spiritual enslavement. And they're saying, no, 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 we're good because we follow Yahweh because we are Jews and we come from the line of Abraham. We're good. We don't have a spiritual problem, Jesus. We don't have an issue with sin, Jesus. We don't have, we are free because of who God is and who, and in the promises made to Abraham. And what they're resting in is the promises that God made to Abraham, but they've forgotten that they've broken the law. They've forgotten that they've broken the covenant that God made with them. They weren't living in obedience to God and they were actually rejecting God right there to his face. See, because even if, even if they did admit that they had a problem with sin, they weren't going to see Jesus as the answer to it. We'll see this very clearly as we go through this. They would see him as a good person, a good teacher, a good rabbi, someone that would probably help them with the biggest problem that they felt they had in their mind, which was the Romans. Maybe this guy who's done this great thing for, for God, maybe he could remove the oppression of the Romans in our life. But they didn't see him as the Messiah, the Son of God. They didn't see him for who he really was. They saw him as they wanted to see him. Here's the question I have for you. When you see Jesus, are you seeing him for who he is or seeing him just the way you want to see him? See, maybe you see Jesus as an answer to your problems and he's a means to an end in the way that the Jews were viewing Jesus at this moment. That maybe I'll be with Jesus if he'll fix my relationship. I'll be with Jesus if he brings about a relationship. I'll be a Jesus if he helps me with my health, wealth, or prosperity. I'll follow him if he does this. If he brings about it. And here's the thing. Jesus could do all those things. In the same way that he could have removed the Romans from Israel. But that's not why he's here. And that's not why you should follow him. You should follow him because he's God. See, guys, Jesus doesn't want to be the ramp that you ollie off of. He doesn't want to be a, a, a teacher that you like to podcast from time to time. He's not interested in being an influencer on Instagram that helps give you a better version of yourself. He wants to be the authority in your life. He wants to be your leader, and he wants you to be his follower. He wants to be king. Look at verses 31 again, 31 and 32. What does he tell them? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple and you will know the truth and the truth will set 
you free. What are the two things he says? He says, if you abide in my word, and if you'll be my disciple. He's looking at them, and he's giving an invitation. He's saying, if you would be my student. See, the disciple was a student that followed his master and submitted completely to his teachings. In fact, committed completely in the same way this word abide really connects with it. Because he says, hey, you need to commit to me in the way that you abide in my word. That word abide means to remain, to stay, to make it your home. And Jesus gives a picture of that in John 15. He says, those of you who abide in my word bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In fact, he says, you need to abide in me like a branch abides to to the vine. It's dependent upon it. He's looking at them and saying, hey, look, I want you to be my student. I want to be, you to be my disciple, but you need to depend upon me in the same way that a branch depends on the vine for life. Not just something added to my life, but the source of my life. See, because the thing that entangles, the thing that he came to deal with was not Roman oppression, but depression of sin. And sin enslaves and kills. That's its goal. Look at 34 through 35. It says, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When he says practices sin, he's not talking about every now and then sin, but someone who continues in sin, continues sinning. They make a practice of doing it regularly. It's the thing that they're about. He says they're enslaved to sin. And here's the thing about sin is it always promises freedom, but it never delivers. It always promises freedom, but it never delivers. Right? Peter talks, 2 Peter talks about this in 2.19. He talks about a group of people living in sin and saying they're with God. He says, listen, he says, listen, they promise them freedom, they promise you freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. Sin always looks good on the outside. It always looks enticing. Sin says this: God is holding you back. That if you didn't do what God was calling to you, he's pulling away the fun that you would have. If you would just do what you want to do, you would be free from him and free from everything. And you would be free. But really what we find is that sin doesn't make us free. It entangles us. Right? Some of us in this room, guys, have viewed content on the internet that you thought wouldn't cause problems. But what did it do? You thought it was free. You thought it was going to cause issue in your life. You thought it was harmless. But now it's caused issue in your life, and you're entangled to it, and you're enslaved to it, and you're afraid that anyone would know what you're looking at, and you don't know what to do about it. Isn't that true for you? And every aspect that you pursue sin, does it bring about life? Does it bring about joy? Or does it bring about guilt, shame, and enslavement? See, freedom is only found in Christ, who points us away from the things that look good on the outside, but they're dead on the inside because sin makes you a slave. And here's the thing. Look at verse 35 and 36. Slaves don't get to stay in God's house. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus says you're enslaved to sin. You're not a son. Some of you, that's you in this room. You don't follow Jesus as God. He hasn't dealt with your sin. You try to deal with it on your own. You don't have a relationship with him and you try to earn yourself to God. But the reality is you're enslaved to sin 
and there's nothing you can do yourself to get out of it. But Jesus is so loving and so good. He says, you don't have to stay there. That doesn't have to be your story. He says, I want you to be free, clearly, even though you know Christ. Seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. You have one father, even God. You know what they're doing right there? They're poking at Jesus. And what I say, it is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil. You will do, you will, you, excuse me, and yours will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar, the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whomever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. What we need to see in this argument in which the, Jew, which the Jews are just beginning to hurl insults and Jesus is beginning to tell them the truth is this, is that sin is too big for your human solutions. That's what we need to draw from this. Jesus looks at them and says, my dad is God and your dad is Satan. Oh, snap. He goes, this is the issue. You don't follow me, you don't believe me, because you are enslaved to sin, and your slave master is Satan. How crazy is that? I need you to understand something. that But positionally, where that puts you at is that you are enemies of God. Not just distant neighbors. And even in this moment, Jesus is coaching them to come because he wants them to understand this. And what we need to understand is this, is that sin is a big deal. And when we say, like, God, no, no, you're being harsh with them right there. We're saying sin is not a big deal. And what we're really saying is the work of the cross was a small thing, not a big thing. But we see in Romans 3.23, says what? For all have sinned, every single one of us has sinned. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. Sin is a big deal because God put skin on his son, sent him down here to die on the cross so that we can be in relationship with him. That's a big deal. See, one of the worst things that sin does is it makes you think it's not that big of a deal. But the reality is sin is an apex predator. Its desire is to kill, steal, and destroy you. But we treat sin so much like it's a pet. And there's this particular one that happens. I meet with a lot of men, and it happens regularly. I know this, that statistically, I look at three-fourths of you are addicted to pornography. And most of you won't tell anyone. And most of you won't deal with it. And you won't share the burden of what that is. And your greatest hope is this in your mind, that you will be able to keep it under control and manageable hoping that the moment that you get married and you finally get to have sex with your spouse, that you won't desire that anymore. And that's a lie. Because they're two different things. One is the perversion of something that God has made as good. And that thing is not meant to be replaced by something that's good. But it's going to stay there. And you're going to wake up one day and you're going to continue to do that habit And that seed that you have just kept there for so long will sprout up and will destroy your marriage.
because sin is an apex predator. And you standing up to it by yourself is like a baby trying to fight a great white in the ocean. Absolutely no chance. Because it wants to kill you. It wants to deceive you. And it wants to deform you. Look how it's deformed the people in this story. I think they're good. They're blind to their problem. But look at the effects in their life. They have ears that are deaf to the truth. How many times does Jesus say, I'm speaking the truth to you, but you will not hear it? They're blind to the reality of God right before them. And they're volatile to the truth in their heart and seek to kill the one that's meant to bring them life. See, sin is an apex predator that wants to destroy you, but it also creates in you a behavior like these people to good. That you become violent to those things, volatile to them. That you become enraged by the truth because it bends you and twists you. And your morality and your religion and your traditions and your self-discipline is not good enough to beat it. Because it's too big for you. But it's not too big for God. See, we're going to see that right here in 48 through 59. He says this. The Jews answered him. They're still fighting with him. Are we not right to say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So now they're just going full-fledged slandering him. And Jesus answers, I did not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, there he goes, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Hold on. Circle verse 51. We're going to come back to it. 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you are a demon. Abraham died and did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my words, he would never taste death. They're saying like, look, all these godly people, uh, Jesus, they kept God's word and they didn't die. But did they really? No, they didn't. Because they're not Jesus. Jesus kept his word, God's word perfectly. 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who, who died and the prophets that died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answers them, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If my father who glorifies me, for whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old and have seen Abraham. They're mocking him. And here's the key sentence. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. Look back at verse 51. What does it say? Read it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is the second time that Jesus has talked about his word. And keeping of his word, keeping him free and free from death. Why do his words matter so much? 
why do they do such amazing things or carry so much weight when our words fall so short and never measure up? And our efforts can't make it happen. His words matter because of verse 28. Because Jesus is I am. He's I am. Look at verse 58. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. What does that mean? I am was the name in which God revealed himself to Abraham and Moses. They're like, who are you? He says, just say I am. That's who I am. And when Jesus says that, he's not, he's saying, I am, I am. I am God. That's why the Jews picked up rocks and looked the stone in the death. See, when you're sitting in class, in your religious class, and they're like, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God, just pointing right to this passage. It's like, uh, what does that mean? Why are they trying to kill him at this moment? Hello? He's absolutely saying that. And why that's amazing is this. Sin that is too big of an issue for you to deal with is not too big for I am to deal with. Because what is impossible for you is totally possible for God. In fact, 2,000 years ago, he proved that. As we get further in the story of John, he would prove that. He would die on the cross for our sins, be buried, and three days later raised, having victory over sin and death so we could have life in his name by following his example and placing all of our hope on him. Guys, this is the decision that you get to make tonight. Which posture are you going to have when you follow Jesus? Are you going to be like the crowd that wants to use God to do the things that you want to do, which would leave you enraged and rejecting him for who he really is? Are you going to do what Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells us to do? In Romans 10, 9, and 10, it tells us this is the correct response to seeing who Jesus is. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Is he I am to you? Is he the one that makes right your sin? Because if he is, you don't have to worry about the bigness of your sin. You just get the rest and the bigness of God who dealt with it. And free you will be, free indeed. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for an opportunity to gather with these men and women to look at your word, to investigate it, to let it impact our lives. God, I just ask that the men and women in this room would be transformed by your word, that they would open their hearts to what it has said, they want to change what's going on in their life. God, that we would realize that sin is a big deal and it puts us in opposition with you. God, we are so thankful that you have dealt with that and we can walk free, no longer enemies of God, but sons and daughters that stay in the house, not slaves who will be removed because we've been enslaved by sin. Lord, for those in this room that, that would fall in that category, they would say, yeah, that's, that's where I am. I am completely enslaved in my sin. I don't see and I don't follow Jesus for who he is. God, open their heart, open their mind. Let them see the truth of who you are and that they would respond in faith and trust what you can do that they can't. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. Amen.